30-plus years. And uh, uh, he and his wife, Sue, attended our church, worshipped here with us for many years uh, before God called him to help uh, in a church plant in the Glenmont area that we now know as King's Chapel. I uh, look forward to hearing what the Lord's laid on Perry's heart as he come, brings it forth. Thanks, Perry. Thank you, Scott. I think you can probably hear me on this, and if you can't, I'll speak up. Well, thank you for allowing me back and to talk to you about what the Rescue Commission is doing, as well as to encourage all of our hearts with passages of Scripture where we're prodded on to serve the Lord with more power and love. And that's what we're doing today. Uh, we are doing our backpack, our 500 backpack giveaway this Thursday. And so pray for us, and many of you have already given, and some of you are down there. As I look around the room, I realize that a bunch of my staff are here, a bunch of volunteers are here who are down there all the time, and you're down there preaching and teaching and reaching. And so this church is vitally involved in the city mission, and should be. Uh, George Coffey is 95 years old this, this week, uh, so happy birthday, George. And uh, he, uh, he was a founding board member at the city mission back in 1949. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And along with Dwight Hannay and others of this church, and you've just been really the founding church of the Rescue Mission, and the Lord's doing many things there this, this time, and so we thank God. Susan, my wife, is over here, and uh, so you can see her today, and, and other staff members are here, so thank God for, for what you've done through the city mission. It's been a, a bit of a wild week, and uh, in the last three weeks we've seen three men die in, in around our situation there because there's a real big heroin epidemic and the other day I had the occasion to look across the street and the guy went down on the ground. And when I went over there, I realized that I was a first responder and that's not my skill. But we, he was turning very blue and I realized that he was dying in front of me. And so the young fellow who was, on our, who was a volunteer, his name is Jacob Burns, who never knew when the judge told him to go down and serve at the mission as a volunteer that he would be with me and he would be doing compressions on this man's chest because the firehouse next door was not there. All the people, one half block from us, were over at the bridge talking a jumper down from the city. Now you'd say, this is Albany. So we knew, I knew they wouldn't be here for 10 minutes. This man would be dead. And so as we were pushing on him and doing things, he started to come back to life, started to cough. And I realized that God has us in the middle, all of us, in a generation that is broken, a generation that needs the power of Jesus Christ. And that he would live again to hear the gospel at the city mission would be our hope and to come to faith in Christ. But you've seen uh, that is happening. Another father was with me, and his son died in Troy. He had been in the mission the night before, had died in Troy of a heroin overdose in an apartment down there. And all of this stuff is just happening even recently, and we're just saying, Lord, you've planted us in an area where we need to stand for you. But unless the love of Jesus Christ is in our hearts, we will not be prepared to help them. And really, that's what this message this morning is. It's called Irrepressible Love for Christ. I met some special Christians who just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. You know what I mean? You could have put duct tape over their mouth, you know, and wrap it all around, and then they would mumble out, Jesus, Jesus. You know, they wouldn't, you couldn't stop them. They were just Jesus people. I remember George Norcus. He was a soul-winning coal miner pastor from East Nassau, and he'd come to the chapel and speak. And one day I caught him, I was in Sears getting some tools, and he was in front of me, and there was a young lady signing us out, and he didn't know I was back there. He was saying to her, young lady, do you know that Jesus loves you? 
and he died for you, and that you can invite him into your heart. And, and he did it in such a sweet way that she, she wasn't offended. And I'm thinking, here's this old pastor still talking, whether anybody knows he's there in the line at Sears, whether he's at the mission. He has an irrepressible, something he can't just shut up. And then, you know, as I was thinking of Harold Williams, Harold Williams, uh, you don't know Harold probably, but Harold is a Skodak, an elder at the Skodak Alliance Church, and he stepped off the landing craft on Utah Beach, stepping over his friends as they were lying bleeding in the water. And behind him, his captain of this landing craft, and they stormed Utah Beach. And he's one of the only survivors of that landing craft with his captain in him. And he speaks at the mission. And he's not a necessarily a really refined speaker, but every time people hear him speak, he has such an irrepressible love for Christ. And he is probably the most soul-winning man I know of in the capital region. He's in every nursing home. He's, by the way, 90-something. <laughs> but he's in nursing homes. He's talking to people. And if you're around Harold Williams, you're going to see the same thing. And it's not put on. It's what he is. He's irrepressibly dragging people, praying these people into the kingdom of God. Uh, when I was here at church, many of the pillars that were here, I remember many. But one, one because we don't have a lot of time, but... I remember a good old Jim Stark. <laughs> I would come in there, he'd say, hey, Perry boy. He'd say, you just keep telling him about Jesus. And then I'd hear him, when he may have not known me, talking about Jesus Christ. And it just, you couldn't stop Jim Stark from doing that. And I'm thinking, Lord, I came up in a church at Westerlow with such powerful testimonies of the irrepressible love for Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, there's irrepressible, unstoppable love for Christ in such a shattering way that it's, a, it's, it's an example for us today. Jesus said it would be, and we need to really look at it. But look at the place for love. We've just read the scriptures. Is a friendly village called Bethany. And the reason why Bethany, which is only a couple miles from Jerusalem, from Calvary, why it's was so friendly is because Jesus had strategic people that he had worked in their lives. And whenever he was in town, I think they literally went out on the streets and dragged him into their house and said, our house is your house. Here's the key. Here's the combinations. Here's the padlock. Here's the garage door combination. Just, you just use it. Whenever you're here, Jesus, it is yours. We are your, your disciples. And that's where Bethany was. Maybe you have a place of Bethany in your life where no matter where and how weary and how beat up you are, you can go there and kind of say, ah, I'm here. And they say, hey, it's great to see you. Come in, come in, come in. We've been preparing for you. And that's what Bethany was for Christ. He had walked 18 miles uphill. Anybody here walk 18 miles up a hill lately? <laughs> you might, maybe you did. I've been hiking the Catskills. I'm in the 35 Club, which means 35 mountains, which are over 3,500 feet. And, and I've been walk doing them just to force myself to see, you know, am I going to even make it? But I've, I've got 13 done. So if any of you know how to do a mountain, there's about 10 of them. We have no chart, map, or anything. You just got to set your compass to the peak. So if you're interested in that type of stuff, see me. We'll, we'll try to do this together. But, you know, the issue is Jesus did it, and he's 18 miles up the hill, and he's on his way to Calvary. In six days, he will be dead. He knows it's the time to say, Goodbye to his friends. This is the last time I'll see you. And that's where Jesus is. And he comes to the friendly faces at Bethany. He comes to a place where his miraculous power was so phenomenal when he took Lazarus out of the ground, who had been dead four days. 
a miracle that crowned all of his miracles and a miracle that started drawing all kinds of people. And a lot of the leaders started coming to Christ because of that miracle, and it happened at Bethany. And it's a friendly place. It's also a faithful believer's home. This passage, they were giving a dinner in his honor, and Mark 14, 3 tells us while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the house of Simon the leper. So the host family was Simon the leper. Now, in normal time, you couldn't even be in a leper's house, let alone be at the table with a leper whose flesh was probably rotting off his face and whose fingers were falling off and whose death warrant was already assigned to him through leprosy. But Simon was maybe called the leper, but Christ Jesus had done a work in his heart and sat at the table with Simon, was whole. And he said, if he's coming to Bethany, he's coming to my house. We're having the party here. And uh, everything else was gone. And then that's where he was, at Simon's house. The man had literally, like Lazarus, had been returned from physical death. Simon had been returned from, from living death. A lot of the people I see right now coming in from the streets, they're heroin addicts, they're crack addicts, they're on some of the newer drugs, the designer drugs that we're seeing. A lot of them have been totally sent off, and they're, lep- they're, they're literally living death. That's why in the last three weeks, we've had three of those living deaths. And as I watched almost this man die, I said, Lord, 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 we, this can't be. So you can see we're not over that. They need a touch of the master's hand. And you can be in prayer. It was a place, it was a tough place for Jesus to be, but it was a place at least on the Sabbath day he could be with friends. When he comes to your heart, does he find it open and saying, Jesus, by your spirit, I hear you. Come in. Let's fellowship. I want to spend time with you. And that's what these people were willing to do. Well, the people involved in this love and worship, Martha, was the first we were really there. The Bible says a dinner was given in his honor and Martha served. Now, Martha was a servant. She probably was one of the better cooks in Bethany, I think. And I don't know, some of you are good at cooking. Maybe some of you aren't. I have men that say, I don't even know how to cook water. You know, I don't even know how to boil water. If my wife goes away, you know, basically it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you're like that, you know. (laughs) But... Martha was a servant. We see her in Luke uh, sometime before this, and she was cooking a meal for Jesus, and Mary was at the feet of Christ and said, Jesus, make Mary help me. And Jesus said, she hath chosen a a better part because there's a time for worship, a time for learning, and there's a time for serving. And yet at this time, it was a time for serving. Martha shines. Wherever God has given you to do, your talents, your education, your skill level, whatever it is, serve Jesus with that. That's what Martha is telling us today. I'm a server, man. I think she came in and she said, Simon the leper, thank you for hosting this event. Now get out of the kitchen. This is my domain. I'm doing this. And she put on a bash, you know. (laughs) She did it. It was honoring Jesus, her Savior, who she already had told him three weeks earlier at her brother's funeral, I believe you are the son of the living God and that you are the one who is to come into the world. And she believed that with all her heart. She believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, I am one who is among you who serves, and she's a servant. (laughs) 
This church is full of servants. I grew up here for 20-some years, and I saw servanthood. I saw people who humbled themselves and did the most menial of tasks, whatever it took to serve Jesus Christ. I've seen missionaries go and come from the field who went out humbly to serve, who suffered sometimes but still served and did many things for Christ. You're a servant today if you belong to Jesus. You're his friends, you're his family, but you're servants of the living God. Next was Lazarus and Simon. Now, these two guys, I don't know if they were old guys, young guys, we don't know. We just know that there was a table in the middle and there was a triclinium situation, which was a Greek word just meaning that you lounged. You kind of were on your shoulder, your feet were sticking out. You know, guys, this is like when you're on the couch during football season, you know, and you tell your wife to bring some more chips. You know, your feet are out on the couch. Well, no, it's not that. But, but it's triclinium. It's, it's, it's reclining dining. <laughs> and, and they're all there, these guys. But two of those guys, Simon, the leper who had been brought back from living death, and Lazarus who had been brought back from real death, they were there as testimonies to the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm not even sure that they didn't even have to preach. They didn't have to speak. He was look over and see Simon. Simon, you're looking pretty. You got good color today. You, you, your cheeks are nice. I mean, your digits are all there. You know, I mean, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Tell Jesus, here he is. I, I stand there as a testimony of the power of Jesus Christ. And Lazarus, the whole town wanted to be in that room just to see the man that was dead and now is alive. And who did it? That one right there, center stage, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe your testimony does it. Maybe you'll say, well, I'm not, I don't have that big of a testimony. I was, I was brought up in the church, and at a certain time I came to faith. Somebody else was a, maybe you're a drug addict, and you were on the verge of death just like the man that we brought back this week. Maybe that's your testimony. I don't care what your testimony is for Jesus. Use it for his glory because someday, some way, somebody's going to say, you know, I, I need to know about him. What do you know about him? You told me he touched your life. And so these two men were the testimonials of Jesus Christ. I have them all over the city mission. I'll have guys that I'll look at and I'll say, man, you know, you've been 10 years now on my staff. You were a, a flaming crack addict when you came here. Two of my most powerful staff members, Dave Poach and Samantha Stallworth, who have upper-level positions with us, were, were dying crack addicts and heroin addicts when they came to us 10 years ago. And as I look at their life, I say, you are a testimony of Jesus Christ. Just walking around, you're a testimony of what he can do. Lazarus and Simon, I'd love to have been there talking to those guys and say, wow, tell me what it was like being in there and coming out and hearing the voice of the Son of God. Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Boy, when I heard that and I woke up and I realized I wasn't dead anymore. I was all bound up, but I wasn't dead. And Simon saying, I had rotted flesh, trusted the Savior, and he, he made me new. You cannot, there is nothing but irrepressibility of love. And that, but lastly, we see Mary. Then Mary, she took a pound of pure nard and an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary, Mary, Mary. She loved the Lord with irrepressible love. She, she was one that every time I see her in the Bible, I see her somewhere special. I see her at the feet of Jesus Christ. There's three prominent places where we see Mary. 
her sister Martha, her brother Lazarus. We see her always at the feet of Jesus. The first time she was listening to a Bible teaching by Christ, he was telling her about the kingdom of God. And she was just sitting at his feet, and Martha was very upset that she wasn't serving. But at time, she was sitting. And then the next time we see her at the feet of Jesus, she has come to a place where Lazarus is dead, and he's in a tomb. And she comes out of the house, and she sees the master. And she falls at his feet and begins to weep and says, Jesus, if you had been here, this whole situation would be di- different. And she's crying. And a moment or two later, Jesus Christ is crying. (laughs) He's got at his feet a mourner whose heart is torn out and broken. And he's touched, knowing he's going to resurrect Lazarus, he's still touched with her grief. Showing you something about Jesus Christ. He's touched with your grief. He's touched with the feelings of your depression, the feelings of what you are. You can bring that to him. Say, Jesus, I feel so badly. Do you love me still? Do you care about me? And you're going to find, yes, he cried. He cried, with, he cried with this precious Mary. But the last time we see her at Christ's feet is right now. <laughs> and she is there in a different fashion. It's called worship, worship, and worship. And that's where she is. And it's irrepressible and unstoppable about what she is going to do. She looks at Jesus, and she knows in her heart, that he's been telling them, and she's been listening more than anybody else, even more than the disciples, I'm going to die. He told his disciples coming up that hill on that 18-mile jaunt, they're going to take me, they're going to spit at me, they're going to scourge me, they're going to kill me, and I'll raise the guys again. And those guys still didn't understand what he was talking about, but Mary did. She had listened enough about him. She had an intense ear for him. And being at the feet of anybody in the ancient world meant that I listened to them. I'm kind of a, a disciple, a student of that person. And when you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you say, well, that was nice for Mary. She could be at his feet, but I can't be because he's in heaven bodily. And I'm going to tell you right now, we are at his feet. When we take his word and say, Jesus, show me your heart and your life. Tell me what I should do and not do. Tell me who you are. That's being at the feet of Jesus Christ. And today, tomorrow morning, every morning when I'm I'm doing my devotions and reading through the scriptures, I'm saying, Lord, teach me. Teach me. Teach me, Jesus. Teach me. Tell me your word. That's how you're at Jesus' feet today. You can be right where she was, right where she was, not bodily, but you'll be with her. That's where she was. She'd rather been at the feet of Jesus Christ than anywhere on earth. That's where she was. And that's why... She saw him. She knew that there were wanted signs all over the area, per se. You saw at the end of this passage, the chief priest was so mad that Christ was gaining all of this popularity. They wanted to kill him, and they wanted to kill Lazarus. Can you imagine the evil heart that would say, we'll kill him, and we'll kill the evidence, too. We'll kill Jesus. We'll kill Lazarus. She knew that there was a warrant out for him, and that anybody that saw him was responsible under the law to turn him in. This was kind of a clandestine worship service, as it were. But she saw him, and she knew this will be the last time I will see Jesus Christ alive. At least in her heart, she knew that he had said, I'm going to die, and she believed him. And right over her, in her irrepressible worship, came this thought, what can I do for him? What can, how can I show him how much I really care? How can I show him what value he has in my life? And she says, yes. 
She goes to her bed and she picks up this alabaster stone bottle that's been there for a long time. It's about $18,000 in our language worth of perfume from the Himalayan mountains. It's pure nard. A dowry, an investment. We don't know what it was, but she says, I, I know what I, I'll give them the best. I'll, I'll, I'll take the best thing that I ever have. I won't even worry about whether I have it or where it's going. I'll just take that. So she brings it and she breaks it open and she pours it other other passages in the synoptic gospel say she started it. She even poured some on his head, but she poured in the rest. She's got it all on his feet and his feet. He's reclining. And so she's anointing his feet. And then she takes down her tresses, which were, which was not something that was normal and typical and was probably not really appreciated by some of the men there that she was being immodest. But she took down that long hair and then toweled off his feet. It was irrepressible. You couldn't stop her. It was irrepressible. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> she took the role of a common servant. Spurgeon said, you must sit at the feet of Jesus before you can anoint his feet. And Mary had already done that. This was her third time at the feet of Jesus. She sacrificed an extravagant display. David said, I won't give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. She was alone at the feet of Jesus Christ. She didn't really care what others were doing. It wasn't about them. It was about her relationship with Christ. Don't be too concerned about other people. I know we live in a day and age of plurality, and everybody doesn't want to hear about Jesus and the Supreme Court, and everybody else, they want to tone him down and tone him out. By the Spirit of God, just concentrate on Jesus. Love him. Honor him. Be a witness for him. In the light of culture, yes, but in the light of just Lord it doesn't matter. It's between you and me. We just sang, until I die or he calls me home. Here in the, the love of Christ I stand. I, that nothing else can happen. Well, she wanted to honor the Son of God. And she wanted to do something for him that was the best she could do at the time. And she did. I read, I've been reading the, the, uh, I've been reading the uh, biography of C.T. Studd. Some of you know who C.T. Studd was. He, he, he spent his whole life as a missionary. He first went to China, then he went to India, then he finished in Africa and spent a lot of time in every one of those three countries. He was at Cambridge University. He was a, a, a world-class cricket star on the cricket team. I don't even know what cricket is, but it's some kind of thing you hit with a ball or something. And, and so if you know what cricket is, that's great. But he was a world-classer. But seven of his friends, the seven of them got together, and they were called the Cambridge Seven. They were all from very wealthy families. His father was a multi, multi-millionaire uh, tea, tea plantation owner in all over India. But they decided they would go to China for Christ once they graduated from Cambridge, and they did. And while he was in China, his father's estate was settled, and he was sent $50,000. Now, in, 19, in 1888, $50,000 is a pretty good-sized chunk of cash. And his other family members got their share. And I thought, wow, now this missionary, he's going to be able to just provide for himself for years. He's going to be self-supporting. And C.T. Studd said, I'm going to give it all away to other missionaries. I'm reading his Bible, I'm thinking, really? <laughs> you know, my mind goes out, you know, I've got my accountant hat on, thinking, wow, that money could support you. For, you know, so he gave, he gave it all away. But the one thing that floored me, and I put down the book and I said, God, forgive me. 
He sent $5,000 to D.L. Moody in 1888, around there. And in the note, he said, please go back to that tea plantation where my dad owned and bring those people to Christ. D.L. Moody sent him back a letter. He said, I, I can't go there, and I, I just, that wouldn't fit where I am, but I have a, a request. I want to use the $5,000 to start a Bible institute in Chicago, Illinois. I said, Lord Jesus, wow. <laughs> he started Moody Bible Institute with the money of C.T. Studd, a missionary to China. And I thought, Lord, how dare any of us think that the extravagance of a missionary and those that money is still bringing people to Christ through the thousands of missionaries that, that I, I, I today, to this day, do you ever get arrested by God? <laughs> Where he, he says to you, no, don't put, put that side, put that aside. Your thinking isn't right on this. Sit down. I want to teach you something. And that taught me something of the irrepressible love of a man named C.T. Studd for Christ. Well, quickly, to honor, to honor and worship Jesus Christ because of what he has done. She saturated the house with the scent of her perfume, very pervasive. We sang, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. But there was a protest. You see, there are some participants. We've seen who they are. There was a protest. You think, really? One of the disciples, Judas said, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. That's about 18 grand. Wow. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put in it. But Judas, at that point, was being very hypocritical. His noble display for the poor was a cover-up for him. He didn't have the same love Mary did. In fact, he later that week would accept one-third of the amount that Mary just put on Christ. He would accept it as a betrayal fee of betraying the Son of the living God. But there's a shattering comparison going on in this passage of his selfishness and her selflessness. And yet, Jesus speaks up. I'm glad he spoke up, because Judas was a devil. MacArthur, John, said this, the most tragic human being who has ever lived was Judas Iscariot. He is the most despicable character in history. He is the betrayer of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Judas sold him. And the contrast between the love of Mary and the selfishness of Judah Judas is shattering. He sold Jesus out for a price, and it's despicable. But, you know, our world today is selling out Christ. Some Christians are selling out their testimony to Christ, holding on to things they shouldn't hold on to. I say to them, what's the cost that you're, that you're paying to hold on to that and not love him and worship him and serve him? What, what are you paying He's been sold out, too. Oh, Lord, don't let us sell you out. Let us just stand firm. Let's be strong. Well, Jesus, I love Jesus, always has a last word. You go to a party or a reunion, and there's always a relative who gets the last word in, right? <laughs> no, you don't have those type of things. Right? But the fact of the matter is, Jesus gets the last word in. I'm glad he did. And he better have the last word in our life, too. 
Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It is intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I like the word leave it alone. In the Greek language, it is a written in the imperative mode, which says, knock it off. And this is not an option, fellas. Do not rebuke her anymore. And when Jesus says that, man, I don't think there was a, I think it stopped everything. It's like, okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Leave her alone. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) You know, he said you're going to have the poor. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't love the poor because Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, has done more for the poor of this earth than any other force in the history of the universe. And when he touches your heart or my heart or others to serve the poor, it's done in a fashion that nobody else has ever done and probably ever will done. And then he has a plan when he comes back in his kingdom to do away with poverty on his level as he rules as king. But praise the Lord that worship, though, does come what? It comes before this service because worship, true worship, will only help the poor as you serve them. As we, as we stop, he says, Truly I tell you that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Mark 14, in his rendition of this, says, Jesus said, for years to come, for centuries, people will read this and say, thanks, Mary, thanks for it. Because too often people at funerals have waited too long. Ever go to a funeral and you know there's some people there that they never offered or gave forgiveness and they never received any. They never loved and blessed that person, and they waited too long, and that person is dead. And in their heart, there's this ache that says, Lord, why didn't, if I just had five minutes with that person, I would tell them what I'm thinking. I think it's going to be that way when we get home to be with Jesus, and we look at him, and we might say, well, I wish I had served you better. I wish I hadn't dilly-dallied in some other fashion. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry. And he will forgive and love us, but there, there will be loss of reward, of course. But as we close... Today, if you're gripping, gripping something else, let go of it. If it's keeping you from Christ or if you're not saved and you're in this room and you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord, he would go on to Calvary that week. He would die for your sin and mine, and our sin was laid upon him. So thank you, Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, lay down the things you're holding on to. They will be nothing but burned up. Your relationship with Jesus Christ will give you eternal life by faith in him. And Christians, what will it take for our love to be irrepressible, to show extravagance in our heart and love? I think at this point, that's where we are. I love this story because it shows something of the irrepressibility of what it means to love Jesus Christ. And it shows that someday we know how we remember Judas, but when we turn to Christ and are living with him, we know how we remember Mary. That's what Jesus said we would do. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and love. We ask your blessing upon each one here. Thank you for Mary's wonderful example. Thank you for your wonderful love for us, Christ, which far surpasses anything even Mary did. You gave everything you had, the priceless life you have. You died for us. And, oh, Lord, help us to love thee irrepressibly and to tell others and be witnesses of the great love of Christ.
There'd be somebody in here that says, I turn from sin. I repent and I ask Jesus to save my soul today. If you tell him that, he will. He'll give you life eternal. He'll forgive your sin and give you heaven as a gift. You can't buy it, but he'll give it to you free. Jesus, save me. Tell me you did it at the end. Just say, Perry, I did that, and then I'll pray for you. God bless uh, this congregation, Lord, in your precious name of your son. Amen.